Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I am joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. John, how are you? Wait, you're not John Pop. Oh, that's What have you done with John and who are you? Oh, well, unfortunately, John showed me everything about the control room that I need to know, so I've replaced him now. I am the younger John Pop. I'm a better John Pop. Do you have a name? Yes, my name is Sean Brian Skinner. You got three names. (laughs) No, no. Do do you fancy yourself a fancy boy with three names? I'm Sean. What is it? I would say I am a bit of a fancy boy, Jack, right. but that's not the reason why. Okay. okay. So, so you're not, John. Tell us, tell us a little bit about how did you find yourself in that seat today? Oh, that's a great question. Well, you know, I graduated from college back in 2021. You, I came you from graduated Rutgers. from college? I did, yes, I know. Shocking. I would have never guessed. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But uh, I graduated from Rutgers University back in 2021. I've been looking for a job in politics ever since then. It's been very difficult, but luckily I found myself here. This is probably the greatest internship opportunity I ever could have stumbled into. So I'm very happy to be here. I liked you until you said you were looking for a job in politics. (laughs) Politics Uh, is horrible. It certainly is, but I'm going to do it anyway. Are you a charlatan? No, I'm Are a you a liar? I'm a masochist. <laughs> All right. Well, you do you, Sean. You do you. Thank you. Anyway, welcome to the Power Hour. I'm teasing you, obviously. I'm glad that you're here. And John will be back soon. He's taking care of some... He's, he's going and doing some John Pop stuff. Yes, but he'll be course. back. Now, you ask me how I'm doing. Oh, oh of course. I'm, I'm so self-absorbed. I forgot this. How are you doing today, Jack? I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm worried, Sean. Do you know why I'm worried? Why is that? Now, there's the Middle East. Mm-hmm. There's Ukraine. There's it's inflation. Certainly. Those things all concern me. But call me crazy. I think those things will ultimately be resolved. I'm not one of these World War III guys who thinks as terrible as they are. Not, and I, I know I'm, I uh, make light of things in this. I'm not making light about those. Those are horrible, horrible things. But I think that they will be resolved. I tend to agree with that position. Would you like to, would you like to hear why? Sure. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, to just keep it brief, I think that with the power of the United States, although we are currently living under difficult circumstances given the Joe Biden presidency, I will say this much. I think that the United States still has a lot to offer in terms of financial and military resources. And so I think that we can help our allies. I know that people don't really want to fund Ukraine anymore, but if we do want to win that war, I think we could fund Ukraine. And at the very least, if not that, we could fund Israel. I think we'll get out of this just fine. I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So You are political. Be... See, I'm, I'm not that political. <laughs> I'm just philosophical about it. People resolve things, and, yes. and it, it'll get resolved. That's true. That's here's true. why I'm worried, though. To get to the point of the matter, I read an article this week that said that Google's artificial intelligence could consume as much energy mm. as a nation the size of Ireland. That's just Google and its AI. What about, like, crypto mining and EVs and the bajillion other things <laughs> They're going to be using more and more electricity. That's not even to mention the vast swaths of the world 
that don't even have access to electricity. I mean, there are places in the world literally burning dung to to warm their 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 houses. It's really unbelievable how much growth there is and that there will be for electricity. And that's going to require a lot of power. Yet, when you look at projections from governments and international organizations, they do predict that there's going to be an increase in, in demand, but nothing like what I think there's going to happen, that there's going to be. And worse, and not to get into politics, is I, I really don't, I'm not a politics guy, but not to get into the politics of global warming, but I do have to say that a lot of the global warming policies being imposed right now make it even harder to reduce the amounts of power that we're going to need. And that's what worries me. Well, that and, now you might know, not know about this, but my I've been working on building an outdoor shower. Oh. And I cannot get it plumbed. Every time I turn <laughs> it on, the pipes burst. So that worries me, too. The but first that's problem was trying to build an outdoor shower. No, no, I, I can... prefer mine to be indoors, personally, like well, everyone else. You should hang out with me more. <laughs> not in the shower, but to recognize the, the, uh, the fun of outdoor stuff, including outdoor everything. Anyway, so the question is, what are we going to do? Does it rhyme with schmooklier? Schmooklier, schmooklier. I would say it does because if I know well, anything about your podcast, Jack, it's that you're a big fan of nuclear. Unless I'm wrong. Unless well, I'm wrong. we'll see. Luckily, this isn't the Jack and Sean show, though it may seem like <laughs> it at this point. We actually have a guest. We have a great one today. A guest that I think might help us to feel better about this quandary. Someone that I know is thinking about this stuff. So that's good. But first, as we always do, we have to do a little bit of housekeeping. Our email address. Please send me an email, everyone. Tell me what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what you want to hear more of, less of. Less of. It's thepowerhour at heritage.org. Thepowerhour at heritage.org. Email me. We love hearing from you. And I will answer every single one of them. Everyone who's ever emailed me, I answer. So keep them coming. Again, that email address is thepowerhour at heritage.org. Now, Sean, do you know where people can find us? That's what John would know right now. Oh, boy, looks like I am a bad replacement at this moment. Right. Um, unfortunately, I cannot tell you. Oh, well, I'll tell you. Luckily, I'm here. They can find us on all of the podcast platforms under the Heard at Heritage feed at the Power Hour. So if you type into the Google or whatever, Heard at Heritage, the Power Hour, or the Power Hour Jack Spencer, it'll come up that way. Or you can go to Spotify or iTunes or wherever and type in those things, and you can find us. And then make sure you hit subscribe so you don't have to. You don't have to type anything. It just pops up, and you get this awesome, this entertaining, educational podcast once a week. What a wide array of options. So there you go. Anyway, as I was saying, let's get to what we're doing here. I am super excited about today's guest. Now, Power Hour audience, you know that my what my favorite subject is better than giving government bureaucrats a hard time, and I even like it better than talking about coal and how it gets the short end of the energy stick. It is nuclear energy. But don't fear, we're not going to go over again how awesome, safe, or clean nuclear is, though we might touch on that. We're going to talk about the American commercial nuclear industry. What is the state of the American nuclear sector? What are its opportunities? Does it mean jobs? What does our industrial base look like? What's happening to the nuclear industry to establish American leadership around the world? And I think our conversation... Now, I can't predict exactly how it will unfold, but it's going to build around the promise of new nuclear technologies like small nuclear reactors as well as what I would argue is often forgotten in this conversation, large reactor technologies. People act like SMRs, and I love SMRs. I'm not giving them a hard time. But people act like everyone's building them everywhere. They're awesome, and they might be, 
But what we know is awesome are large light water reactors because we got 445 of them operating safely around the world, providing a ton of clean energy. So, as always, I'm not bringing just some schlub off the streets to talk about this stuff. I only bring you, the Power Hour audience, the absolute best people in the world, the absolute top experts, and today is no different. I am so pleased to welcome my guest and my friend, who I've known forever, almost for as long as I've been doing this stuff, I've known this person, Carol Berrigan, Executive Director of Federal Programs and Supplier Relations for the Nuclear Energy Institute, a great organization. Carol, welcome to the Power Hour. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here with you. Great to be here. As I mentioned, we've known each other forever, but we haven't seen each other forever either. So what have you been up to? And we're going to talk nuclear, but first, we're going to talk about you. So tell me what you've been up to. Oh, I've been traveling a lot, Jack. I've been traveling for, for some fun, and I've been traveling for work and seeing a lot of airplanes. That's, that's what I've been doing. Where is the top fun place you've traveled in, say, the past year? That's a good question. I had two really fun trips this year. One of them was to the UK, where I got to spend some time with friends and do some sailing, which is is a passion of mine. And the second fun trip was just last weekend. I got to take my nephew down to Texas to go look at some colleges. Awesome. Where at in Texas? We were in College Station and in Austin and looked at two amazing schools. And it was just wonderful to be there. Ate some great barbecue, had some good tacos, had a chance to see the bats come out under the Congress Avenue Bridge. I think that's did a lot come out. A lot of a lot of bats. It was like a cloud of bats going along the water. It was really amazing. I was watching some. uh, I'm a YouTube guy now. Like I don't watch regular TV. I just watch dumb YouTube videos. Although they're not dumb, they're awesome. And one of those YouTube videos was in Austin, and they did the bat bridge thing, and like six bats came out. So I'm happy that that was not your experience. No, there was definitely more than six bats coming out from under that bridge. Good. Now, what are some of the highlights professionally, travel-wise, that that you've done? Uh, So I was over in um, Vienna recently for the IAEA's general conference and then in Paris for a meeting over with the OECD, uh, the Nuclear Energy Agency at the OECD, and then I went back to Vienna for their climate change conference, which was was a good event, and I'm headed out the end of this week to Ghana. So Ghana? Yeah, yeah. That's head, awesome. Heading to Ghana the end of the week. So have you been to Ghana before? I have never been to Ghana before. I've never been to West Africa before, so I'm really excited about this trip. That it sounds fun. I, I look forward to hearing about that. I've never, I've also, I've never been to any Africa before. I would really like to go. And one of the interesting things about, since you mentioned that, we actually have a pretty good listening audience in Ghana. I'm not even kidding. We actually do. And my Ghana folks, you know who you are out there. I look forward to hearing my, my the, the, getting the email from you. So anyway, maybe you'll come across Carol. Ghana's not a huge place. You never know. It's possible. I've never been there. I have no, I have no terms of reference for it, but I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> awesome. Well, that sounds good. Now, we're going to get to nuclear, but I want to hear. I want to talk a little bit about what you do, NEI. So, can you tell folks about NEI? What is NEI? That sort of thing. Sure. So, the Nuclear Energy Institute is the policy organization for the commercial nuclear industry. We've got north of 340 members in 17 countries, and we work on a whole range of issues on behalf of our membership. 
And our membership is really interesting. It really is the full spectrum of the supply chain for nuclear. It's utilities, it's vendors and suppliers, it's universities, it's law firms, it, labor unions. It's, it's really a very, very broad cross-section of organizations with an interest in nuclear. Without getting into stuff that's none of mine or anyone's business, I'm just I'll just ask, do because it's interesting. Do you, has NEI's membership changed over the years as as the industry not I shouldn't say, as nuclear has gone from say in the early to mid '90s into the early 2000s, not really having a big new nuclear, a lot of new nuclear momentum through there being momentum and it coming down. And when I say momentum, that means more than just utilities running reactors, but like the prospect of building new ones. So that whole supplier chain. Has the, the does your does NEI's membership and focus shift as as sort of the issue shifts? Well I think I think with any policy organization, as the the environment shifts, the, the organization shifts and adapts. I think that's that's pretty normal. I think what's really interesting right now is looking at the number of companies that are involved in new reactor space, reactor designers, um, companies that are developing new concepts. I think that to me is really interesting. Um, and that's been one of the biggest areas of growth and membership from my perspective on the supplier side. Lots of supplier companies have been long-term members of NEI, but now we're seeing more, more new companies joining as well. So exciting time in that space. Good, good. Now, I'd like to hear what you do at NEI. So I, I gave your, your title, mm -hmm. but no one's job is really just their title. So what do you do there? So I work on a lot of international issues on behalf of the industry. I work on some government affairs issues, and then I work a lot with our supplier members. And that is, that's been, I think that's where you and I met initially mm -hmm. was when I was working on supplier member issues many, many years ago. So a lot of a lot of focus there. Do you run around NEI saying that I have the best job at NEI? Na 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 na. Because it sounds like you might have the best job at NEI. I have a pretty cool job at NEI, but you know, it's it, NEI is a great place to work. There's a lot of opportunities, and no day is the same. So you're you always have new issues, new things to work on, uh, a lot to learn every day. So it's it's been great, and I just actually just celebrated my 20th work anniversary at NEI. Right. So I, I must like it because I've been there 20 years. Yeah. I've been at Heritage. Accounting for service is a strange math. When I use normal math, which I'm not good at, granted, but when I use normal math, having started in November of 1998, minus the two years I worked for Babcock and Wilcox, it's some number of years more than 20. Yet last year, I just got my 20th anniversary thing. So I don't know how the math works, but I've been here somewhere between 20 and 20-some years. So I, I appreciate working at a place that has been supportive and is fun to work at, and you want to, like, put the time in, mm -hmm. which is good. So anyway, what I do want to talk about, though, is you're also involved in other organizations, are you, yeah. Aren't you? Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about just, you don't have to go into all the detail, but I just want to give people a sense of like, we have a real player here who is involved and just to get a sense of, of who we're talking with. Sure, sure. So I'm also an active member of the American Nuclear Society and 
have been in different roles with ANS over the years. Again, another wonderful organization. I'm also on the Nuclear Energy Advisory Council at Texas A&M, which is a great, an amazing university and a great nuclear program. I believe it's the largest nuclear program in the country and had the, the great opportunity of spending some time down there this past week and touring their labs and seeing all of the, the terrific experimentation work that they're doing. I got to meet a little bit with their ANS student chapter and see how excited the students are. And it's just, it's so great to look at young people beginning their career in a, in a field that I'm passionate about and see that same passion and see that enthusiasm and see that interest as they're looking out at their future. So that's, that's a little bit of what I've been involved in. I've been involved in Women in Nuclear, both the U.S. organization and, global, and the global organization. I've since turned those over, but yeah, I've been involved in both of those. You brought up students. I'd mm-hmm. like to talk about that just for a minute or two. One of the things that people ask me often, young folks, is like, I want to do the kind of thing you're doing. How do I get into that? Do you, For our younger listeners, do you have any advice or, or thoughts on how someone might get into the nuclear industry or or get involved in policy work for, sort of from a, a, an association standpoint or just sort of what are your thoughts to young folks who want to follow a career that may, might be sim- similar to yours? Oh, gosh, that's, that's a tough question. I would say in general, as I look at the nuclear industry, there are lots of different kinds of jobs in nuclear. A lot of times when people think about nuclear, they just think, it. oh, this is a nuclear engineer that's who's in it. But if you look at nuclear, there are so many different kinds of jobs. Nuclear employees, engineers, both nuclear and non-nuclear, mechanicals, electrical, there are computer science people, there are um, operations people, there are skilled crafts involved in nuclear, welders and pipe fitters and, and so many other, and electricians and so many different occupations. There's also, you know, policy and, and those sort of things involved in nuclear. So there really is just a tremendous breadth of options if you're interested in getting involved in the, in the industry. I think it's, it's an interesting industry as well because it's geographically fairly dispersed. I mean, it's not that you have to be right here in Washington. There are nuclear plants in, in many states. So I think that's, that's also interesting, and the supply chain is diverse as well in terms of geography. But if you want to get into the policy side of things, I think the most important thing is to look for opportunities to engage on policy issues. You know, policy isn't only just here in Washington, it's also in, in, in the states. There are wonderful NGOs you can get involved in as well that are working in the policy space that touch on nuclear. So, so lots of opportunities. I think an internship is, is a great way to get your foot in the door. Yeah, no, I agree with all that. I think that one of the great things about nuclear energy in general, but nuclear, is that, as you said, the whole spectrum of, of skills are necessary, everything from the technical skills to... to being able to do a podcast. I mean, I one might argue, and I, I would never argue that I'm in the nuclear industry, but I have made a career out of being engaged in nuclear policy. And for lack of a better way to describe it, I picked it up on the street largely. You know, I had a chance to work in, in, in industry for a few years, and that really gave me, I felt like those couple of years, a master class in, in nuclear policy. And then you're able to sort of parlay that into any sort of direction. That's just one career path. 
And so really, I think, it, you, as you pointed out, look for the opportunity and jump at it. And at the beginning, you come in before everyone else and you stay later than everyone else and you work harder than everyone else. And before you know, you all have had a career in whatever it is you choose to do. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. And I think, you know, also looking for the opportunities to find the informal networks is really important. Yeah. You know, I think about my involvement with the American Nuclear Society. That's been incredibly informative. And so for young people looking at getting involved in nuclear, ANS is a great opportunity to learn and network and meet people and meet peers. They've got a really active young members group. So there, there are a lot of opportunities out there to yeah. engage. Before we move on, I'll just say, I want to say one thing about NEI that I've always appreciated, having done this from a policy standpoint. And often, though I, I'm as pro-nuclear as anyone that's ever walked the face of the earth, I don't always agree with every all the policy nuance with any organization. But NEI has always been open to me and talked to me and helped me learn whatever I need to learn or answer whatever questions. I just think the world of NEI and all the people over there, and so I have nothing but great things, you know, j just having a... I can't believe a 20-year history with them at this point. Nothing but positivity about NEI and what they've helped me do over the years. So, Oh, thank you. That's that's wonderful. I, I really appreciate that. And I'll take that back to the folks at NEI. <laughs> Let right. them know you said that. <laughs> I, I, well, that's great. But let's talk about nuclear. We're not, we don't need to just sit here and talk about everyone on the back. We need to talk about the issues. That's what people are tuning in for. So what's, things are looking up with nuclear. I think that that's the bottom line. So can you sort of walk us through what's going on with nuclear? Why are things looking up? So I think as I look at it, we really have a very interesting confluence of events that are happening right now. You've got more and more people looking at climate change and looking at emissions from a policy standpoint. And then with the very, very terrible invasion of Ukraine and folks starting to look more at energy security issues. I think those two issues have come together and really brought more of a focus on nuclear. We're certainly seeing that in, in countries in Eastern Europe with an increased interest in nuclear. We're seeing that in other countries in different parts of the world as they're looking at meeting their energy security goals and commitments they've made on climate. So. That, to me, is really a very interesting space. The other piece that I think that's interesting is starting to see policies that are supportive of nuclear, so a change in the policy space. And I look at, you know, like the EU taxonomy and the inclusion of nuclear there and then how that, that was one data point. And then we saw green bonds in Canada and nuclear was in some of that. And so just seeing those connected policy pieces, I think create some momentum for nuclear that is is really positive. Yeah, I think from my perspective, one of the interesting things that's going on with nuclear from a policy standpoint, it's both a something that helps nuclear, but it, I think it's also something that has held nuclear back. And we're seeing the upside of it now is that because nuclear has always been such a, has, has been subject to public policy. And if the rhetoric and the, because a nuclear plant is expensive and there's like big investment, and there is a history of policy leading to bad outcomes with nuclear. It's in this weird situation that putting aside like direct support, just having a government who's not against you really helps build momentum forward because nuclear brings so much to the table. You talk about energy security. I'm not a big global warming guy. I'm not going to get into that. 
But that's not why I like nuclear. Like nuclear provides all of the elements that we have all said we want in and provided by energy. It's it's clean. It's I believe it has been in the past. And I believe it can be and will be in the future extremely affordable. It um, is reliable. It's all of the things that you want. And that that we've allowed policy to get in the way of that, I think, is unconscionable, but it is what it is. And I'm I'm so optimistic about where we are now in policy space and where the potential is to lead us. Now I'm going to ask you a question that is not as positive, kind of. It is, I feel like we've been here before. Maybe not, it, the dynamic isn't exactly the same, but around in, you know, at, coming out of the Energy Policy Act of 2005, there was some policy momentum, maybe not as broad as it is now, but there was certainly policy momentum. We all remember the, the, the hope for nuclear renaissance. And that all fizzled largely. C certainly the, what people had hoped for fizzled. Why are we different this time? And are we different this time? And are, are, do, is there a chance that if we don't get it right this time, it will fizzle again? That's a complex question, Jack. That's um, what we're here to talk about. Okay, okay. So I, I'll just share my perspective. I think what's interesting right now is because this, what I'm seeing is really a global change. I'm seeing a lot of positivity from many areas, policymakers from around the world making very positive steps towards new nuclear. I'm also seeing innovation in the nuclear space, which I think is really, really exciting as we're looking at the offerings that are coming to the table. It's not just large reactors. Large reactors, incredibly important, will be here for, you know, will we'll be a, an important part of nuclear. I think that we're also seeing smaller reactors. We're seeing these SMRs. We're seeing micro reactors. We're also starting to see advanced reactors that are coming into the mix. And I think we're seeing interest in, in nuclear beyond the electric power sector. And I think that that's really interesting. You were talking earlier about, I think it was Google AI and the power demand there. When you start looking at the potential increased electricity demands, both on the grid and off the grid, and then other sectors needing energy supply, reliable 24-7 clean energy supply, I think nuclear really is is in a very key space as a technology that kind of answers those those questions. I think the other really interesting thing about nuclear is the recognition that nuclear is really a long-term technology. It's a generational technology. It is, you know, can form the basis of a century-long relationship with a with a partner. These plants run 40, 60, 80 years. I mean, they're really, they're long-term, consistent, 24-7, reliable power sources. So and predictable. I, like, I'm, yeah. one of the, I think one of the great things about nuclear, just from a business standpoint, is you don't have supply and demand price fluctuations that you have with more of a commoditized energy source. That's not, that doesn't mean that uranium, the primary fuel of reactors, don't go, doesn't go up and down, but maybe what a lot of people don't recognize is that the uranium costs for reactors is a small percentage of the overall investment over time of nuclear, which allows the technology to withstand price fluctuations without it manifesting as huge swings in power prices, which if you're a company producing not just electricity, 
but other things like fertilizers, plastics, or any of the other things that require power, having that consistent price point for 50 years is a really attractive thing, even if there's a premium to pay up front. And I still argue that's an if. I think that I think that there's a lot of opportunity for nuclear to be competitive in its own right, not just because it's consistent over time. I think the other interesting thing to, to look at, and I'm seeing more studies in this space, is around systems and the development of systems and where nuclear fits in a reliable, clean energy system. And I, and I think that's an important piece to bring into the conversation. I know there was a study Vibrant Clean Energy did where they really looked at if you included, an uncons- if you didn't constrain nuclear in a clean energy system, the cost came down significantly. And I think, I think things like that are the way we need to be thinking about our energy systems. It's, it's the reliability, it's the resiliency, I think that's another big piece, and it's this entire system that we rely on. One of the things I think that nuclear doesn't, that, that a lot of folks don't realize, I don't think we've talked about this before on the podcast, and now we're, we've been talking about how awesome nuclear is, which it always descends into that. But when you pay for nuclear energy as a consumer, you're paying in that price for everything from the first shovel that gets the uranium to that plant being decommissioned. That, that, that the... The, the the nuclear power reactor owner, in their pricing, they have to account for waste, decommissioning, all of that stuff. Like that is all inclusive. Whereas you don't have that with other power sources. So, we, so when you talk about the system's cost, no one has to account for, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not denigrating renewables like wind and solar. I've done that before, but I'm not doing that with the statement. They don't have to account for the cost of taking down all of the windmills and getting rid of all of the concrete that they drilled into the tops of those mountains. Nuclear does, which I think is another really huge, people need to understand that when they're talking about the economics of nuclear power versus the economics of other things that are allegedly more competitive. Any, nuclear's great for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna come back to the negative. Not the negative, but like the questioning. Mm-hmm. All of us in the nuclear space love perhaps one man more than any other, Admiral Rickover. We at least respect Admiral Rickover and recognize what he brought to the table. He has the famous quote about new nuclear reactors and small modular reactors, that they're all paper, he, he says something along the lines, I should, have, I should have written down the quote where he says, yeah, they're all cheap, they're all modular, they're all mobile, and they're all on paper. When you start building them, they all get bigger, they all get more expensive, they all get all of these things, and you end up with a large light water reactor. Does Rickover's quote still hold true today? Or do we need to worry about that? So I kind of look at the the DOE liftoff report that they did in nuclear space. And what their report shows is sort of coming down a cost curve. The first of a kind of anything is always more challenging than when you get to that nth of a kind. So I think looking at the technologies coming to market and looking at them building their first handful of units, I think that's sort of the proof in the pudding, and that's really where the goal should be, to get to that point where we're not just looking at something that's a first of a kind, but really getting to that nth of a kind where we can see deployment. I know when we're we're looking at all of these different studies that are that have been going on, 
we're looking at significant potential growth for nuclear. And so I think when we start thinking about, you know, people talking about there was a recent International Energy Agency report that talked about the need to more than double nuclear capacity. There, there was another recent report by the same organization talking about a growth in significant growth in nuclear. I think DOE's report was talking about, uh, I think it was almost tripling new capacity. I think when we start looking at the scale of what's coming or what the potential is, focusing on getting those those units deployed, coming down that curve, and really getting to that that large-scale deployment is the goal here. And I think the fact that people are thinking about that now is is really critical. I think people are thinking about the jobs, people are thinking about this, the workforce that will be supporting it, people are thinking about the supply chain that can support this. So I think, I think things are looking very positive. Let's talk a little bit more about those things you just mm-hmm. brought up. First, let's talk about the opportunity. Mm-hmm. What is, what's, what's the opportunity for America, American industry? Also, the United States used to be a leader, the leader. I mean, commercial nuclear power was invented here, speaking of Rickover. And American industry largely, I guess, lost, lost its leadership role in many respects for new nuclear with the emergence of the South Korean nuclear industry. Japan has been a leader not even to talk about Russia and who knows what China is going to do. Where is, what's the opportunity? Where is the U.S. nuclear sector today and where is it going? So I, I'm going to push back a little bit on, on the, the sense of that we've completely lost leadership. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think we run the largest fleet of nuclear plants anywhere in the world. I think we run them at better than a 90% capacity factor and have done that for 20 years. I think we're doing a lot in the nuclear space. We haven't been building a lot domestically and and you know you've got the great example of Vogel that's now online now, but we're seeing now a, a, an interest in nuclear internationally. We're seeing a lot of interest in nuclear domestically. I think there are something like um, plans for advanced nuclear reactors across the country, um, which I think is really interesting as people are starting to move there. I think the innovation and the technology is an area where the U.S. really has a, a tremendous opportunity to extend leadership. I think the other piece that I, I think is really interesting as we look at the situation in Europe, and this is something where I feel like we should all be really very excited about this, where we see the interest in Europe for folks who are operating these Russian-designed reactors to move away from reliance on Russia for their manufactured fuel. And you know that fuel in a reactor is is a, a manufactured product specifically designed and then licensed and tested for that reactor. To see options in the West for fuel supply for those reactors coming into the market. I think those are really exciting places where the U.S. is really pushing out in leadership. I think in SMR space is another area we're seeing a lot of U.S. leadership with with companies moving forward with, with innovative designs to bring these smaller reactors to the market. And then I think when you start looking at some of the designs that are coming to the market in advanced reactor space, that's another real area of leadership where those designs are going to be very interesting because of the market niches that they can fill. It's not your grandfather's nuclear power anymore. This is a nuclear industry that has lots of makes and models 
for lots of different applications and needs. So I think that's really where I'm seeing the opportunity for leadership and couple that with that century long relationship that it creates with a partner. I think that's really powerful. And the, the realization of all of that now is a different space than we've been in in the past. So I take your criticism or your pushback, which I love by the way, pushback is always <laughs> fun, that we never lost, that, that my, I overstated that we lost our leadership. However, I will answer your pushback with another pushback. <laughs> yeah, it's we, there's no question that the United States remains the gold standard of how to operate a nuclear power plant. People want to do one, two, three agreements with us. They want us to, as they're setting up nuclear power programs, there's lots of interaction wanting to deal with our regulators and our industry to, to set them up. That's all true. And this, this isn't really pushback. It's me acknowledging we, we have have that leadership. It, but but I would argue that it's almost as if we had become, I'm not arguing we are or will become, but we had become a service sector in the nuclear industry. Not We had lost the manufacturing piece of it. Like even Vogel, that reactor vessel was built in South Korea, which is perfectly fine. Like That's not a critique. I mean, we weren't building large reactors. We shouldn't have probably. The ability to produce those in the U.S., at that time probably didn't make sense. It's not a critique, it's just is what it is. The, we had, yeah, we operate, American companies operate. I'm always careful to say, me to say we, because not being a communist, I know that I don't own any nuclear power plants. American companies operate more nuclear power plants than anyone else and do it better than anyone else and safer than anyone else. But we hadn't built any for a long time, so there wasn't a need for, it would be awkward to have a large nuclear industrial base to, to support that. though. We do have, on the military side, people don't recognize we do build multiple reactors every year, which happen to be small and mobile and and equally awesome. And we have an industrial base that supports that. So we do have certainly something to, to build upon and, and a fountain of leadership to, to feed this industry as it grows. When I think, you know, the other thing that's really interesting, as we look at this opportunity for new pl plants in the future, there's also that opportunity for the U.S. supply chain. So I, I think, you know, connecting those two thoughts is also very important. We have the capabilities of doing a lot of things. We've got a, a very well-established nuclear infrastructure in terms of, of the Navy. We've got companies that are have the potential of, of being part of supply chains for different nuclear designs. So I think this is, a, this is really an era of opportunity as we look at this going forward. I agree with that 100%, and that's what I wanna talk about next is what, what's the size of that opportunity? And when I look across, when I, when I look at the different companies that are putting out different designs and thinking about different things, maybe my own bias comes out here, but the most of them, most of the new and innovative companies I feel like are American. That doesn't mean there aren't other ones, but th there's like this entrepreneurial spirit that seems to be percolating in the United States. The foreign the big foreign companies have their SMRs offerings and that sort of thing. But I don't see around the world, maybe I'm just not close enough to it, this entrepreneurial spirit of these startups and all of this innovation and that sort of thing. That feels like it's here. I feel that way too. It may be just what I'm exposed to, but I definitely feel that enthusiasm as well. And I think about that in terms of the infrastructure for nuclear here in the US. We have an amazing national laboratory system. We've got incredible universities that are that are doing research. 
So I think that becomes a foundation that then feeds an innovative culture in the sector. So I, I'm, I'm really excited based on the infrastructure we've got that underpins this. Now, you had mentioned the workforce stuff. Can you talk a little bit about what are the jobs and, and could you relate it? I don't know if you, you know this off the top of your head, so excuse me for asking this question. What sort of jobs have been generated from past nuclear projects? I know that we a lot of jobs are generated in the U.S. even for foreign projects. Could you talk about sort of what we've experienced recently, maybe, if you have that? But more importantly, like, what's the potential, what's the opportunity from a workforce economic development standpoint? Sure. So I, let me start with sort of the, the phases of a, a nuclear project. So you've got your design and engineering and all of that work. You've got your manufacturing work. You've got your construction of a nuclear project, which would bring it brings in a very large construction workforce. Then you have the operating life of that plant. And then eventually you have the decommissioning of that plant and all of them across that entire life cycle has a lot of different career opportunities. The other piece that I think is really interesting in the conversation now is as people are looking at coal plants that will be retired, the opportunity to bring nuclear plants into those communities, and I think you see that in Wyoming right now, I think that's, that's really interesting because that's something where a lot of the skills in the workforce that was operating that coal facility can be repurposed for work, you know, just those skill sets can be transitioned into careers working in the nuclear industry. I know that there was a recent study done and there was a significant proportion of the folks who were working in the coal facility could find similar careers in, in the nuclear facility. So to me, what's great is it's not only that they create jobs, they create high quality jobs, their generational employment, that facility will be there for, you know, the, the operators and constructors now, it'll continue to have jobs in those communities when the next generation comes along. So it's really a long-term employment benefit in the community. They tend to be also an economic engine in their community paying very well based on, on you know, wage scales in those communities. So they're really a great neighbor to have with all of those different jobs that come in. Now, you had mentioned going in where coal plants are. I won't get into my rant about coal, but I do like coal. That being said, I remember a couple of years ago, and I wonder if it's still part of the conversation where people were talking about coal plants that would shut down, how you could almost take a small reactor and fit it into that existing infrastructure. Is that something that's still being talked about, or, or is it more complicated than that? I think it's probably a little bit more complicated than that. I mean, some people still talk about that. Others talk about reusing the infrastructure in terms of the switchyard, that sort of physical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So I think it depends where you're looking. I'm glad you said, I, I agree with that. I think one of the problems with almost everything, people try to oversimplify stuff and then it creates an, ex, it creates an expectation. Then when it goes unfulfilled, it's looked at as a failure and it puts a black eye on the entire operation. And, and I think that, I think almost every, so many things in life fall under that, that dynamic. And I'm glad that you, gave them what I think is a more realistic, even though I wasn't fishing for that. I'm glad that you gave that. And it's because nuclear provides so much, like it doesn't need to be artificially simplified or made to look differently. Like it, it in, on its own merits, has so much to offer. We don't need to 
artificially shine it. Like, it's shiny already, I, I would argue. Um, I want to talk a little bit. We're jumping back and forth a little bit, but I didn't go as deep as I wanted to into U.S. leadership around the world. So, so nuclear, we've you know we've established in this conversation before. It comes in all different shapes and sizes. We're talking big nuclear plants that are producing electricity. We're talking remote nuclear power plants that can provide power to to to, to villages even. And then there's the whole industrial sector. Like there's the tech sector. Like we're literally. Nuclear power can provide, I don't want to say all, I don't, I don't want to do what I just accuse people of doing, making it sound like everything different, but maybe all. But it's really diverse. And when you think about so much of the world and how much development it has to do just to get up to Western standards, and then the Western world, there's no matter how many, no matter how many regulations the Department of Energy passes for efficiency, we're going to use a ton more electricity, whether... The bureaucrats want us to or not. And that's going to happen all around the world. What does U.S. leadership look like? And how does that benefit the United States? And, you know, talk, talk us through that a little bit. Okay. So, so I think, you know, when I think about U.S. leadership, one of the important pieces with nuclear when the U.S. is a partner is that it really is very much a partnership. And with that comes... Our, sta our standards and norms for safety, for nonproliferation, for security. It comes with the export of the reactor, but it also comes with that ongoing engagement with that program through the life of the program. So I think that's a big piece of it. I think we've got a lot of engagement going on between our regulator and foreign regulators. I think that um, some of the work that's being done through the State Department in terms of capacity building is part of that leadership. I look at the um, workforce training that's that's starting to happen. There are simulation centers that have been announced in Romania as well as in Ghana just a month or so ago. So I think that there, the leadership is really in engagement with that program over the life of the program. You know, unlike a lot of other things, you were talking about nuclear plants being a little different in terms of reliance on commodities and things like that. I think nuclear is different in that there is a they're very engineered and technically different than something that is able to just bring in a commodity. That fuel is engineered. That plant has a lot of bespoke systems that creates a long term relationship. One of the I'll just add something else that I think makes nuclear important if from a global standpoint and that enhances U.S. leadership. It's not the direct result of the United States engaging around the world, though U.S. engaging around the world facilitates what I'm about to say. The only reason countries like Russia or anyone is able to use energy as a weapon or as a political tool is because there's not enough of it. And the quickest way to undermine any bad guy's ability to use energy as a weapon is to absolutely flood the global economy with as many electrons and molecules as you possibly can. And if everyone has access to abundant energy, re abundant reliable energy that they control for the most part, or that can be easily replaced if someone were to do something bad, so you have multiple, so you have a as little friction in the market as you can, that will take energy off the table as a political tool and as a weapon. And I forget the first president of the American Nuclear Society, 
But he's the one who said nuclear energy is too cheap, will be too cheap to meter, although he was actually not talking about nuclear energy. He was talking about fusion, which people don't recognize. While nuclear energy will never be too cheap to meter, nothing is ever too cheap to meter. It can be so abundant. It can make energy so abundant that energy is no longer a political issue about which wars are fought. Now, that, that might be overly optimistic and, and aspirational, but like that's the potential of nuclear energy because it gives, in, it gives countries, communities, industries control over their energy. Then there's nothing that shake or a, in the Middle East, like no one can do anything about it. It would be awesome. I guess I, I'm not as aspirational as, as you describe yourself, and just in, in sort of how I think about things. But what I do think about is really that that issue of energy security that I mentioned sort of the beginning of, of our discussion. And I think that's really important. You know, if you look at nuclear energy, it does provide energy security. I mean, you think about nuclear plants, they refuel every 18 to 24 months. There's not a pipeline that's going to a nuclear plant. The fuel's on site. It's it's in and that's the, just today's reactors. Yeah. That, that's not even to mention the advanced ones that have five, eight, 15 year refuel schedules whenever you start talking about high assay, low enriched uranium fuels. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. I, no, but I think that's really important. And I think, you know, you brought up the issue of, of these small reactors. I mean, think about a micro reactor, you know, a small reactor that can provide power for a small remote community and you're not reliant on diesel shipments to go up to provide diesel fuel for for a, a generator. Instead, you've got this microreactor that will run in your community and keep the lights on, and you're not dependent on that constant supply. I think there's a ma- there's an amount of energy security that comes with nuclear. Yeah, without question. And and my aspirational just just to uh, put a to to defend myself slightly. I don't know that I think nuclear actually can do that. I think that that's so far out the road that but but what can do it is free energy markets, free, frictionless energy markets so that so that as I said originally, you're flooding the market with molecules and electrons of all sorts. A truly all of the above approach that allows everything to to flow and compete and and that undermines the in any economy, any, no one can control the market if there are easy substitutions and if people have control. But anyway, I'm just very optimistic about what, what nuclear what nuclear can do. Now, we're coming up to the end of the hour, Carol. First, let me ask you, is there anything that I missed that you wanted to make sure you mentioned? Or do you want to correct anything that I said and say, Jack, you're an idiot. Why did you say that? Oh, gosh. Can we go back the entire 20 years we've known each other or just in this? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I mean, I kind of think about nuclear just in this really special moment right now, just looking at what is happening in the world and the solutions that the nuclear industry can help bring to bear. I think that that's, that's just so important as we're looking at plants that are operating today, extending their period of operation, so do, doing life extensions on, on existing plants. I think, you know, looking at the, the number of countries that are moving forward with really concrete steps to new plant construction. I think the, the, the innovation that's happening in the industry with the promise of these new technologies, the interest from the industrial community in these new technologies, I just think we're just at such a special moment around nuclear that there's an incredibly positive future. And then I look at 
you know, I was talking a little bit at the beginning of the episode about some of the students I was engaging with, and I was thinking about, you know, my nephews. I've got got two two young nephews, and thinking about their future and just the incredible opportunities nuclear will bring to communities to benefit from the clean and reliable energy that nuclear provides, the jobs that come with that, the additional opportunities for innovation, and then that that security and partnership that the U.S. and leadership the U.S. can have with our partner countries, our partners and allies around the world, I think is just, it's just such a critical and important moment for us to to get this right. That last part is the most important part. That's what, there, that, I began saying what I'm worried about. That is something I worry about, that we have this tremendous opportunity and that government will screw it up. And I don't want to get into the details of that. We can do that another time if we want to. But I'm just afraid they're going to screw it up. And one thing we didn't talk about, I wish we had, is the what government can do to make it easier to export and to get American nuclear technology around the world. But we can talk about that in another time, too. That's a whole nother episode, I know. Jack. But, but, you know, I think the good news, though, that I'm seeing right now is I'm seeing tremendous agreement. You know, there's you're, we're here in Washington, D.C., we're all aware of the disagreements that are going on politically right now. But I think what's really important is nuclear really does seem to be an area of agreement. And I think we're, we may not always agree on the how, but we're seeing coalescence around the what yeah. and really positive political support and long-term political support yeah. for nuclear. And I think that's, that's really critical. And I think that's some of what you were trying to get to in the beginning of the episode. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, are you on social media or like how can people find you or learn more about nuclear or NEI or sort of that sort of stuff? What can, how can people learn more about following you, following you or NEI or nuclear that kind of thing. So I'm on LinkedIn. So that's that's one place. I have no idea how to find me on LinkedIn because I'm not the most skilled with the social. But so I, we don't need to worry about you and that digital electron electricity yeah, I, demand growth. I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> me either. I'm, I'm helpless when it comes to that stuff. But NEI does have a great website. It's NEI.org. Lots of resources there. Lots of materials and information. So that's a great place to get information and learn more about some of the issues we talked about today. Awesome. Well, any final words? Is that it? Thank you so much for having me on. This has been fun. It's great to have you. Sean, do you have any final words? I guess I'll just go ahead and say that it's been a great show, and I'm happy to be a part of it. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. Sean said it. It's been a great show, so it must be the case. Remember to email us at thepowerhour@heritage.org. Thank you, Sean. You sure. killed it today. And Carol Berrigan, thank you so much for being an awesome guest. Most importantly, thanks to all of you all for listening. We will see you next time. See you.